Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm Jared Bremmett, audio engineer and editor, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. This episode is part two of a message Rob delivered at World Outreach Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. As always, we'd like to invite you to visit robertjmorgan.com, where you'll find Rob's blog post, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Now, there is also one thing we know, and that's in John's Gospel, chapter 9. This is the story of the blind man. The whole chapter is devoted to this story. None of the other gospel writers tell it. So it says in chapter 9, verse 1, as he went along, referring to Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the assumption was that if something bad happens to you, it's because you've sinned. So they thought, maybe this couple had premarital sex, and God judged them by giving them a blind baby. Or maybe this baby sinned somehow in the womb. Or maybe God knew in advance that he was going to sin, and so he punished him with blindness. And Jesus said, that is not true. Not the way to look at it. Not the way to consider it. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. I use this as an illustration in a little book I have called The Red Sea Rules. It says that we shouldn't ask ourselves, how did we get into this mess? Or how can we get out of it? But how can God be glorified in the middle of this mess? And that's exactly what Jesus was saying here. We don't always know why something bad happens, why you have this problem or this affliction or get this illness or have a child with this physical difficulty. That's God alone knows those things. He's got a purpose for everything. We have to trust his heart when we cannot understand his way. But the Lord said, don't think that anybody is being punished because of their sin here. The Lord knew. 33 years ago that this young man would come face to face with me and that I was going to heal him and that people would be reading about him and talking about him for 2,000 years and all of this is for the glory of God. So he said in verse 11, after saying this, he spat on the ground, made some uh, mud with his saliva and put it on the man's eyes. This is the only time that Jesus did anything quite like this. Now, he healed in a lot of different ways, but to spit on the ground and then to make mud out of the dirt and the saliva and to smear it over somebody's eyes, why would he do that? Well, he wanted him to go somewhere and wash it off. And so he said, go to the pool of Siloam. Now, the word Siloam means scent. I mean, that is so important, it's actually in the text of the scripture here. The concept of being sent runs all the way through the Gospel of John. 
Jesus said, the Father sent me. I've been sent from heaven. I've come down to heaven because I was sent. And then he said to the disciples, I'm going to send you as the Father has sent me, so send I you. It's one of John's themes is being sent. And so here, this man is an illustration of it. And Jesus put mud all over his eyes. He didn't want to heal him in front of all of these people. This man hadn't seen anything in his life. He didn't want him to suddenly open his eyes and and everybody look at him in amazement and have to deal with the crowd. So he sent him. Jesus later, I'm sure, sent this man as an evangelist somewhere. We don't have that story, but he was teaching him to go where he was sent. And so it says, the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. Now this man didn't know very much at all about the Lord. I mean, he absolutely didn't know who had healed him. And so there's a great discussion about that. And down in verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a sinner, uh, and they're referring to Christ, how can a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. This was one of the controversies that Jesus had because he would heal on the Sabbath day and they were turning against him. And so they would... They had an inquisition here of the man, and they questioned his parents, and finally down in verse 24. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. The man replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, one thing I know, I was blind. But now I see. That was his one word of testimony. That was the one word he could say. He couldn't give a theological explanation as to the person of Christ. He couldn't explain how the miracle would have occurred. All he knew was he had been blind all his life. And now suddenly he saw the skies and the trees and the people and the streets of Jerusalem and all of the color. And he was blind but now he had been touched by the master's hand and healed. And we don't have to be great theologians to bear a witness for the Lord. Children can be witnesses. My daughter is here, came to the Lord when she was five years old. She was out playing with another child. She said, let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you about Jesus. That child went home, said to her parents, what's this about? The parents led her to Christ. A five-year-old witnessing. Now, don't you think you can do something for the Lord and initiate a gospel conversation? I saw some teenagers this weekend in Arizona at the retreat I was at, and they were so on fire for the Lord. Now, the, I will just say parenthetically that over the past couple of years, I've been in a lot of places. I've seen a lot of young people. I have never seen a generation on fire for the Lord like the younger generation is. It's under the radar right now, but it's there. And this friendly teenager, this friendly teenager, this fella, told me, he said, I wanted to witness for Christ, and so I made a sign with John 3.16 or something, and I'd carry it through the hallways of my high school. And the administrator told me that I couldn't do it. And I was so upset and I argued with him, and I lost. But then he said, someone told me, don't be angry, just think of another way of doing it. And so he said, I knew of a company that 
would sell you shoes with customized messages on them. And so I ordered shoes, and on the top of the shoe, both shoes, it said, Jesus is Lord. And he said, I walked around the high school, and kids would see that. They'd say, what does that mean? And he said, I would tell them, and he was able to win a number of kids to Christ, and then they had a big arena meeting, and he invited people, and they came, and he evangelized them, and the Bible says, how beautiful is the feet of those who serve and take the gospel of peace to the ends of the world. So we can all, we can all initiate gospel conversations, and we can say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see one thing I know, and that is I was blind. Now I see I was lost. Now I'm found. I was hopeless, and now I'm doing all right. Something, someone touched me, and now my life has been made whole. Now the, what number are we coming to? The next one is in Philippians chapter (laughs) 3. Philippians chapter 3, and I spoke on this a month or two ago, but I want to revisit it briefly. Paul said in chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ, to become more intimately and deeply acquainted with him, perceiving, recognizing, understanding the wonders of his person. I just want to get to know him better and to know the power of his resurrection, to live and the power of the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, and to participate in his sufferings if I have to suffer or die for him. I just want to be willing to do all of that. And so somehow, by God's great grace, attaining to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained all of this. He said, I'm not yet in heaven. I'm not yet perfect. I still have a lot of things that I'm trying to work on in my life, and the Lord is trying to work on them with me. Or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward, upward, skyward, and Christward in Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying here, I just want to keep going forward. One thing I do to keep aiming higher, to be on higher ground. And he said to me, it's like a racer who doesn't look behind him, he just keeps going straight ahead. Dr. David Jeremiah says that when he gets in his car, the windshield is very big, but the rearview mirror is very small. You cannot drive by looking all the time in the rearview mirror. You have to glance in the rearview mirror, but look out at the road ahead. And we don't want to live in the past. The Lord gave me a verse about a year ago from Isaiah chapter 43. It says, do not dwell in the past. Forget the former things. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Even now it springs up. Do you not see it? And I'm making for you a way in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The Lord has a better future for you than you've had in the past. Because the Bible says in the book of um, Proverbs that the pathway of the righteous is like the sun that keeps rising higher and higher until it gets to the noonday. 
I found a verse the other day that was very encouraging to me. It was at the very end of the book of Job. It says that the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former. And I said, Lord, bless my latter life more than the former. So we've got to keep pressing on the upward way. New heights we're gaining every day, still praying as we're onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Now, there is one last verse here. And that takes us all the way to the return of Christ in 2 Peter chapter 3. So let's turn over there and we'll finish up tonight. 2 Peter and chapter number 3. When you read 2 Peter, I'll give you a little outline for it. Chapter 1 is about our faith. Chapter 2 is about our foes. And chapter 3 is about our future. So here this third chapter is about the return of Christ. He says in verse 8, do not forget this one thing. So there's one thing, Peter says, you cannot forget. You can't let it slip out of your mind. You can't stop living in the constant awareness of this one thing. There is one thing you have always got to keep in mind from the time you get up in the morning until the time you go to bed at night. Remember this one thing, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I believe these early disciples thought that Jesus would come again in a few weeks. I mean, I really do. They had a hard time understanding that the return of Christ may be further out than they thought. So Jesus said, I'm going to go up to heaven and then I'm going to come again. And in the meantime, I want you to tell people about me. And they said, when are you coming again? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put under his own authority, but you're to go out and to preach the gospel. And so they went out preaching the gospel, and they were always looking for Jesus to come again. And by the time Peter was an older man, some people were saying to him, I don't think the Lord is going to come back. He would have come back by now. Why hasn't he come back? And Peter, at that time, had more understanding. And he said, well, to the Lord, a thousand years and a day are the same thing. I mean, when you think about that, to the Lord, Jesus rose again only a couple of days ago, right? If a year is a thousand, if a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, God is so far above time, it doesn't move to him the way it does to us. So to us, a thousand years is a long time. To God who is eternal, it's like a day. So Peter is saying, you've got to evaluate this from God's perspective. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The reason he isn't coming yet is because he wants more people to come into his kingdom before he does. Now, Think about it this way. In the 1800s, there was a great evangelist named Dwight Moody. He preached about the second coming of Christ. He preached that Jesus is coming again. Christ is coming again. But if Jesus had come in the days of D.L. Moody, no one in this room, no one watching online would ever have gone to heaven. We wouldn't have had the chance to be born. So the Lord delayed his coming. 
so that those of us who know him could be born and could be saved and his kingdom is extended. So it's really a wonderful thing that the Lord is delaying his coming because it gets, gives increasing generations the opportunity of being born and coming to him. So he says the Lord here is wanting everyone to come to repentance, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare since everything will be destroyed in this way. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We are just looking forward to it. A couple of weeks ago, I took two of my grandchildren ages 8 and 11 to uh, California with me because I had a speaking engagement in Ventura. And uh, so I took them to a theme park. And they were so excited. I mean, when they went to bed the night before we were to go, they were excited. I stayed at a hotel on the side so we could get up early and get there, be some of the first ones there to ride the rides before anybody else got there. And that morning when I woke up, I didn't want to get up, but it was 5.30 or so. And I said, hey, guys, get up. They jumped out of bed. They were, I think they were fully clothed. I think they went to bed in their clothes. They were looking forward to it. Isn't that the way that we should feel about the return of Christ and heaven? Just looking forward to it. Because people who are looking forward to the return of Christ live with a hope, which is the confident expectation of something that is bound to happen, that sustains them through every single trial and up and down and difficulty and burden and blessing of life. So one thing we remember. So here it is, the ultimate priorities. One thing we ask, that we can just be near the Lord and enjoy him forever. One thing we lack, if he isn't really Lord of our lives, then we need to delegate and downgrade these gods and put Jesus in charge. One thing we need to sit at his feet and listen to him. One thing we know well enough to tell. We were blind, but now we see. One thing we do, forgetting what is behind, we press on towards the goal to win the upward call of Christ. And one thing we remember, that the Lord is coming to earth again. And what if it were today. Now, if you're here or watching and you've never received Christ as Savior, I want to give you a very earnest personal invitation to do that tonight. You can say, Father, I want the priorities of Scripture to be my priorities, and I confess my sins, and here and now, I want to receive Jesus Christ and give my life over to him. And you can do that. You can kneel down by your bed or your chair or wherever you are in your home. You can come to the altar here afterwards or you can, wherever you are, you can just make that decision for Christ. And if you have repentance towards God and faith towards Jesus Christ, the Bible says that it is by faith through grace 
his goodness to us that we are saved. And he wants you to live not by the tyranny of the urgent, but by the priorities that make an abundant life worthwhile. And they're found in Jesus. Will you stand as we have our benediction? If anyone would like to pray or talk at this altar or here at the front of this auditorium, there'll be people here to pray with you. And now, dear Lord, we thank you that you have in your word told us the really important things in life so that we don't have to guess about them. Now we, may we go from here and live them out. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us tonight and both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company, Clearly Media. Audio editing and engineering is done by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, and posts them as blogs on my website at robertjmorgan.com, where you can find many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thank you for tuning in, and may God be with you until we meet again.